We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Michael Fahey. Hello, Gavin. And by Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the President of the Federated States of Micronesia writing a letter to leaders in which he sets out details of Beijing's political warfare and grey zone activity against the country and outlines a potential agreement to switch diplomatic recognition to Taiwan. The DPP's Taipei Hui narrowly winning the Nanto legislative by-election and the Bamboo Union holding a high-profile spring wine party with a rather large police presence. But we'll begin with US House Speaker Kevin McCarthy confirming that he plans to meet with President Tsai Ing-wen in the United States early next month. However, McCarthy told reporters that the meeting does not preclude a possible trip to Taiwan at a later date. The US House Speaker also dismissed reports that the meeting in California is being held to avoid possible confrontation with China and that both sides were uneasy that a visit to Taiwan would severely increase cross-strait tensions. And according to McCarthy, Beijing can't tell him where or when to go and the Taiwan president, well, she just happens to be in America. Now those statements came after the Financial Times and Reuters earlier this week reported that both sides agreed to meet in the United States because of Taiwanese security concerns. Now reports are saying that Tsai has been invited to speak at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library during a transit through California on a planned visit to Central America and McCarthy is likely to meet her when she is, well, in the state of California. Now US State Department spokesman Ned Price is describing Tsai's expected travel as being a transit rather than a visit to the United States. And speaking at a regular press briefing in Washington, D.C., Price said transits of the United States by high-level Taiwan officials are consistent with long-standing U.S. policy and with our unofficial and strong relations with Taiwan. He went on to say that it's nothing new, it's not something that would break any new ground and is entirely consistent with the status quo. So, Ross, of course, speculation that McCarthy was going to pop off to Taiwan, then suddenly not is She's going to meet him there. Tsai's going to meet him in America. I thought you used an interesting word about you know, this doesn't preclude a visit to Taiwan. I was wondering if it precludes a visit by Speaker McCarthy to China at some point in the future, <laughs> because uh, we know that uh, China, China's government and state media and, of course, netizens are going to uh, come out uh, with quite a bit of anger directed at McCarthy in a very personal way, similar to uh, what we saw last year with uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit maybe the level will be slightly smaller or less intense because it is occurring in the United States. Then there was another word you used, uh, quoting uh, State Department spokesman Ned Price, uh, who's who's about to leave his job. He's probably really thrilled he won't have to answer questions about Taiwan and China um, going forward, uh, is status quo. And the, the reality is much about this is as price indicated. It's status quo stuff. The president transiting the United States on the way to visiting uh, countries that have diplomatic relations. Well, that, that's uh, been there, done that, both for, or for, for all of uh, the recent presidents, uh, whether that's uh, President Tsai, President Ma, President Chen. Uh, the public events while transiting, again, that's uh, become the status quo or the standard operating procedure for uh, Tsai, Ma, and, and Chen. 
visiting the Reagan <laughs> Library. Well, President Tsai did that as well, uh, although I noted uh, there, there was some attempt to say, well, last time it was remarks, and this time it'll be a speech. And uh, meeting the Speaker of the House, well, we, that's happened before. Uh, some of us may recall Speaker Pelosi coming here last summer. Uh, so meeting the Speaker in person, uh, not new. Uh, in, in past years during transit visits, maybe the president uh, had a, uh, a teleconference with either the Speaker or the minority leader uh, from the House or the Senate. Uh, so much of this is is been there, done that, uh, but of course, a, a big deal will be made about it. Yes, I'm expecting a strong reaction too from China. Uh, however, I suppose it just illustrates that China gets to choose the time and place of its strong reactions, and it doesn't really matter whether Speaker McCarthy is meeting with President Tsai in Taiwan or in the United States. China is going to be unhappy. I do think that the the primary reason for the meeting in the U.S., though, is to serve President Tsai uh, and the DPP's political needs here in Taiwan. It's pretty clear that the KMT is going to be running on a platform of peace. Uh, Vote for us and we'll have peace. Vote for the DPP and your children will be on the battlefield. And so... Tsai, President Tsai and her uh, her designated successor, uh, William Lai, don't need uh, another blockade or uh, that that can be pinned on them as having caused it by holding the meeting with McCarthy here in Taiwan. So well, I actually said that on television earlier this week, and uh, one of the fellow, fellow panelists from the Kuomintang, he wasn't happy because <laughs> I said, uh, I, I think the Taiwan government uh, discouraged McCarthy from coming for the reasons uh, you just identified, that uh, it would cause a military response from China and then Kuomintang would play the the opposite side of that. Uh, of course, they denied that. They, you know, they didn't. But he's speaking from the Kuomintang perspective. He 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 denied that um, and, and thought it was a completely bonkers theory. Uh, but I guess twenty three million other people uh, do do think that the DPP didn't want to play into the hands of the Kuomintang in that regard. I mean, Michael, what do you think the public reception would be had he come here, vis a vis meeting in the states? I think the KMT could have portrayed it as having been uh, overly provocative. And I think that six months on, we're still feeling the aftershocks from the Pelosi visit. Uh, And I do think that there's some traction for that view in Taiwan. Uh, So it makes sense to me to have the meeting in the U.S. where uh, the Thai administration can't really be blamed for provoking China. There's another very practical aspect of this as well. Uh, Speaker Pelosi had been in the House for decades, although uh, she had been active on human rights issues in China and Hong Kong. She was never really known uh, for being heavily involved in Taiwan. Uh, we, we talked about this many times on, on the show, Gavin, that uh, she wasn't unfriendly to Taiwan, but but she wasn't among the, the key leaders in the House over, over the decades on things like weapon sales to Taiwan. It just wasn't one of her main issues, notwithstanding her interest in China issues. Uh, but be that as it may, she, she obviously... Uh, had served at the highest levels several times as a speaker, the first female speaker, uh, had a lot of achievements. Whether or not one likes her politics or not, we have to acknowledge 
that she had uh, enormous success as a politician at times. And uh, whoever won the House in last November's election, uh, even if the Democrats had, had retained a majority, it, it was very unlikely that she would continue as, as Speaker. She probably would have passed that role on to someone else anyway. And they did not keep the majority, uh, so she st- stepped down as Speaker. The point I want to make is uh, th- this was like a, like a semi-retirement uh, celebration for a distinguished American politician. So that added to the show the pomp and circumstance that that occurred with, with her trip. Now, Kevin McCarthy uh, has been in the House for far less than uh, Speaker Pelosi had been in the House. Uh, he's like a lot of Republicans uh, or Democrats, frankly, is, uh, again, kind of come lately to the whole China-Taiwan stuff, notwithstanding that Republicans have generally been more vocal supporters of, of Taiwan over the years. But again, if we go back to his first few terms in the House, uh, I don't think we we perceive Kevin McCarthy as having been active on this issue. Uh, and he's only been Speaker for a few months. So how do you possibly roll out the same kind of pomp and circumstance for him? You know, it would have looked even more preposterous than the pomp and circumstance that was given to Pelosi. Uh, but then on the other side of that is if he had come here and you don't give him the same pomp and circumstance, you don't put his name on 101, you don't give him one of the, the orders of uh, you know, the, 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 the fill in the blank clouds uh, you know, the, of the first degree or with purple sash you know I, I, these names are they, they sound better in Mandarin than they do in English is all I could say about that uh, but if you don't do that then every everyone will be saying uh, well of course the Guomindang would be saying oh you're impolite you didn't treat him the same way as Pelosi uh, and, and of course the media would be pointing out every every aspect that was not at a at a comparable treatment to what Pelosi received. But again, how could you do that for somebody who's only been speaker for a few months? It would have been bonkers. Uh, so I, I think that was a consideration as well. Also, I think that the uh, Pelosi, as you said, was cementing her legacy. Uh, she's a heavyweight. McCarthy is, for a speaker, a fairly lightweight. He barely became speaker. And I think more importantly for Taiwan, Taiwan needs to persuade Democrats more than it needs to persuade Republicans that Taiwan's cause is worth supporting and possibly even fighting for. Yeah, but they're doubling down on the Republicans, let's be frank. They're not really pursuing that with the Democrats. (laughs) And why is that, Michael? Well, although there have been uh, many Democratic uh, supporters in Congress of Taiwan over the years. Uh, it's true that uh, Republicans have been even more enthusiastic supporters for historical and other reasons over the years. And more importantly, though, Democrats' constituencies are less convinced that the United States has any business meddling in Taiwan or the East Asian region. So uh, Taiwan needs to reach those NPR listeners uh, and persuade them that this is not just uh, another American imperialist endeavor. And Ross, I mean, are you eagerly awaiting for the pundits, experts and general social media know-it-alls to equate size U.S. transit with Li Dong Hui's June 1995 visit to the States? Well, a lot of that. If you want to 
just ask that narrow question, then a lot of it would depend, or the answer would simply depend on whether or not she made a speech at at uh, her alma mater. Uh, you know, she's spoken at academic institutions, as, as did President Ma. Uh, the the scale of those events again, you know, we could get into the was it open door, was it closed door, how many people were there, these kinds of silly arguments. And I say they're silly because ultimately. It doesn't make Taiwan any safer or more prosperous if if uh, President Ma had a closed door event at Harvard or President Tsai had a closed door event at, at, at some other university or even if she makes a public speech at her alma mater, uh, uh, Cornell, uh, where she has a master's from, and then someone's going to say, "Oh, but Lee got his PhD there." You know, so again, this gets really, really silly. Uh, probably the best thing we could say about all of this is. Uh, it's about time the president traveled. I mean, you know, Taiwan, you know, everybody was praising it for basically sealing itself off from the world and saying it found some secret recipe to beat COVID. No, it wasn't a secret recipe. We just sealed the borders, lived in a bubble. We are finally emerging from this much more slowly than other countries, you know, as evidenced by you know, the the lifting of, of the outdoor mask ma- mandate last year, then the indoor mask mandate uh, earlier, and recently the school mask mandate, and recent announcement about uh, you know, if you have uh, mild symptoms or you're asymptomatic, you won't have to quarantine. So unfortunately, we're emerging so slowly, and one of the downsides of that is that President Tsai has not uh, gone abroad. Uh, I, I think she could have been a bit more brave uh, and traveled abroad last year. So it's good that she's traveling. It, it's unfortunate that it's been so slow. Uh, this other stuff, you know, where she speaks, what the format is, where she meets McCarthy, it's it's noise. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct, Gavin. You know, the, the self-proclaimed experts on, on social media or at the think tanks and the pundits are going to uh, blabber on incessantly about this and that. Um, but uh, yeah, ultimately, uh, a lot of it is just status quo. So, my comment, just status quo, or do you think maybe some people deserve to be blabbering on about this upcoming visit? Well, I think it all depends on what China chooses to do. Uh, China could have a very stiff response and blockade Taiwan again. Uh, I tend to think that uh, at the moment it's probably not going to choose to be as offended as it was over the Pelosi visit. Uh, But really, it's not up to Taiwan. It's up to China. And moving on now, and there's some news from this morning here in Taiwan. The president of the Federated States of Micronesia has written a rather, rather long letter, and it's pretty long if you ever see the letter, to leaders there, in which he sets out details of Beijing's political warfare and grey zone activity in his country. He also outlines a potential agreement to switch diplomatic recognition to Taiwan. Now, the head of state there says a core threat to the Federated States of Micronesia is China's stated intention to invade Taiwan. And he goes on to say in the rather long letter that the Federated States of Micronesia has a key role to play in either the prevention of such a conflict or participation in allowing it to occur. And he says that he goes on basically again to detail some of the extensive political warfare conducted against his country by China. And he also says, well, he met with Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, that's the Taiwan Foreign Minister, in February to solicit 
what Taiwan's potential assistance would be if the Federated States of Micronesia switched diplomatic relations to Taipei. Now, according to the head of state there, he's projecting approximately 50 million US dollars over a three-year period to establish relations with Taipei. So he's trying to seems there, Ross, he's trying to buy it for 50 million dollars over a three-year period. I. Uh... All involved are going to uh, disagree with your term by. You know, this is not checkbook diplomacy. Procure. Because Taiwan doesn't do check, checkbook diplomacy. <laughs> uh, from, from looking at it from the Taiwan uh, perspective, but my first reaction was, my gosh, why did you put that in a letter? <laughs> you know, that, that conversation should have been kept discreet. Uh, from the, and then also from the Taiwan perspective, I mean, we have to analyze why, what are Taiwan's motivations? You know, why is Taiwan doing this? Uh, Taiwan lost two two countries with recognition in 2019. Maybe they feel there's a need to make it up. Uh, you lose two, maybe you could add back one. Uh, those of us who, who are a little older might remember the adventure with Papua New Guinea in 2005, which involves some of the same uh, people in government who are now back in the Taiwan government because that was under the DPP administration of Chen Shui-bian. Now it's a DPP administration at Tsai Ing-wen. The number that was cited back then was $25 million, a portion of which disappeared into the hands of middlemen. Uh, There was a lot of uh, lawsuits to try to get it back. Uh, There was a lot of embarrassment on the part of Taiwan. It did come across as checkbook diplomacy, and ultimately it didn't succeed. the fact that they didn't reach an agreement is, is peculiar because he is he is outgoing. So he wrote this letter uh, in the final uh, three weeks, months or something. Weeks of weeks his, or yeah, final weeks of his term. Uh, yeah, and most of it was about China and, and China's attempts to bribe officials, and all of that's been well reported with regard specifically to the Pacific Islands countries. Um, it. it this part about Taiwan, again, I, I think it's unfortunate that he decided not to be discreet and he put in the letter. But then I have to ask him, Mr. President, why don't you just make the deal? Uh, but but there's huge risk for Taiwan for doing this. Uh, the, uh, again, the check comes across as checkbook diplomacy. Uh, the, it's likely that China would take retaliation by pulling the trigger on Haiti or Honduras, uh, some other country, and getting them to switch. So the net gain for Taiwan might be zero. And then there's the risk that a future government would switch back. And that's happened a number of times around the world, including with the Pacific Island countries that, that have switched back and forth. Uh, so it's it's risky. Uh, he Another interesting part about this is in the letter, he also referred to possibly not not diplomatic relations, but establishing a, the, the kind of representative office that Taiwan has in most places around the world, and uh, uh, how much aid he could extract from Taiwan for agreeing to that. Now, uh, off the top of my head, uh, you know, in most places, Taiwan doesn't pay you know checkbook diplomacy up front to open a TACRO. Uh, and the other recent trend which we saw in Lithuania and the failed attempt in, in South American country of Guyana was to call a Taiwanese representative office. And, and the letter didn't get into that. So I, I'm very curious, uh, had this project proceeded not for diplomatic relations, but for uh, a representative office, would Taiwan have insisted it has to be called the Taiwanese representative office, not Taipei Economic and Cultural Office? So, Michael, obviously, the Federated States of Micronesia looking for Taiwan partnerships, but obviously at a price quite openly. And as Ross said, it was a bit of a ding 
ding-dong thing to do to put it in this letter. Yes, well, I think that Taiwan wants to avoid any appearance of checkbook diplomacy. On the one hand, uh, the Pacific region is an area where Taiwan can actually make uh, a difference. And I think that Taiwan should go ahead and have aid and development programs to these countries uh, where China's role is being contested and Taiwan can really do something. But I don't think that Taiwan should predicate it on diplomatic recognition, which is basically meaningless for Taiwan anyway. And the Tsai administration, I think, has kept up appearances about maintaining diplomatic allies, but in fact is really not all that concerned with gaining or losing. Uh, they prefer not to, but I don't think they're going to spend $50 million to uh, gain Micronesia. But Michael, this, 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 doesn't, this, this sort of puts the Tsai administration in the, between a rock and a hard place, because they've been, this country is offering diplomatic recognition, but at a price. So, I mean, if they say yes, they're going to look like they're unpaid, taking part in checkbook diplomacy. If they say no, there's going to be the critics going, you turned it down. Why did you turn it down? I don't think the Thai administration really cares what those critics are saying, because those critics are really trying to bolster uh, the international recognition of the Republic of China. And I think it's pretty clear under the Thai administration that Taiwan is really more interested in its substantive relationships with countries like Japan, the United States, and Europe, and the blind pursuit of so-called diplomatic allies is definitely a much lower priority than it has been in the past. I'll take a slightly different view because I, I think for the Taiwan government, having a, a country that has diplomatic relations speak up at the international organizations, the multilateral organizations, and say, as they do for that group of countries, except the one or two that seem to have more, more peculiar approaches um, to say Taiwan should be a member. And that, that's a distinction with the other friends of Taiwan, such as the United States and to a lesser extent, Australia, Japan, Canada, who will say something about Taiwan should have substantive participation. So they don't say Taiwan should be a member because... Yeah, this is part of their their own country. Each of these countries, one China policy, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, yeah, they they won't support full membership in international organizations that require sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so they'll say we support Taiwan's substantive participation. Uh, of course, they never they never take the extra step that that I always advocate for, which is to say if. Taiwan can't have substantive participation. We're not coming. So they basically say that, and then they still attend anyway, and they kind of forget about Taiwan. Uh, but those countries that have diplomatic relations uh, do give a different message, which is uh, Taiwan should be a full member. And we're saying this as a country that recognizes uh, the Republic of China, parentheses Taiwan. And I, I think the current government does put a, a high value on that. And, and that is a contrast with the previous government because the previous government uh, seemed to be uh, willing to accept, and they did accept attending as Chinese Taipei at the invitation of, of China at the w, uh, uh, WHA, the World Health Assembly annual meeting, uh, or, or other multilateral organizations. So 
clearly the Ma government had more flexibility on that, and the, the Thai government has less. So yeah, I, I think they put a, a high value on, on countries saying that. And frankly, uh, I, I think they do put a high value on you know, the state visit, you know, the state visit of the king of Eswatini or the state visit of the prime minister or president of, of a, another country that has diplomatic relations. And it's one more place for the president to visit. Uh, so I, I think this government also puts a high value on that. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the DPP's Tsai Beihui narrowly beat the KMT's Lin Ming-jun in the Nanto County legislative by-election, which took place this past weekend. Tsai received 45,218 votes to Lin's 43,293. Now, the Central Election Commission, this voter turnout for the ballot, stood at about 46.35%. Now, the election marked the DPP's first win of a legislative seat in Nanto County since legislative elections were first held under a single-seat district system in 2008. Now, analysts and pundits alike have been saying the DPP's victory has implications for both it and the KMT. Now, according to one expert being cited in local media this week, the election result was a major boost for the DPP's new chairman, Lai ching as it shows that he's proved himself to be a leader, able to lead the party to victory after several defeats. While another said the election was the embodiment of a trend that has become increasingly prevalent in recent years, whereby voters tended to cast a vote more against than for a candidate. Now that same expert went on to say that while the DPP has gradually regained its footing, the KMT is mired in infighting as to who should run for presidency in 2024. And a KMT official was being cited as saying that the Nanto County loss is a bruising defeat for the party and it must now make a convincing argument that about its ability to handle cross-strait relations and propose platforms that can resonate with the general public, Michael. The Nanto election was a blip on the political radar. It, I thought I thought I built it up there. <laughs> it certainly it certainly makes William Lai look good, uh, starting in his uh, chairmanship of the DPP, and as a good victory for his momentum uh, going forward to run for the presidency. Um, but really, it probably had more to do with the personal qualities of the two candidates in Nanto. Uh, tai Pei Hui is quite an interesting candidate because she comes from such a progressive and activist background. So you would be a little bit surprised that she might be able to win in such a conservative place as Nanto. Um, but she just ran for Nanto county commissioner, so her... Uh, electoral machinery and organization was still in place, and she was well-positioned to uh, eke out this narrow victory. Yeah, but the guy who lost also had a machinery there, having recently served in office as well. Uh, so uh, it, it's certainly embarrassing for the Gomindang, uh, the, the, as is typical for the Gomindang, uh, for the last 125 years, they they uh, organized the circular firing squad and you know try to find the they call it in Mandarin the John Fan, you know, like the war criminal who's responsible for this. There's, there, there's a lot of finger pointing about Party Central uh, came came down to Nanto a bit late, only in the last few weeks, when when it, what had been assumed to be an easy victory suddenly looked like it might 
be close or even a loss. Uh, so there's some there's some people who are angry at Party Central not deploying its resources, uh, and that it's not a surprise that Party Central didn't deploy resources earlier or in, in, in a greater amount because they're they're still celebrating the victory from the, the local election last November and they probably thought this is going to be an easy victory again so they probably didn't think there was a need to to go down to to Nanto I don't know maybe Chairman Ju doesn't like Nanto I don't you know I don't know uh, then the other uh, John found you know, war criminal that they're that people are grumbling about is New Taipei City Mayor uh, Hoyoe and people saying he didn't come down and use his own personal popularity to boost uh, the Guomindang candidate, uh, but he's been accused of that many times before in different elections, both in in, in the uh, local election last uh, November, the preceding uh, national election, or some of the by-elections or recalls that have, have occurred along the way, uh, that, that he doesn't go out and campaign for the party's candidates. He, you know, he's, he's very uh, conservative in that regard. He's very careful about uh, uh, using his own political capital, which goes into exactly what you were talking about, Gavin, that you know, he can't decide whether or not he wants to be president. And uh, uh, Maraho, if you're listening, just make a decision, man. I mean, show some, uh, you, know, you better bleep out by the next word. He does have a day job. <laughs> so what? So what? Uh Many candidates for office in democracies have day jobs when they run for office. President Trump was running the Trump Organization, ran for president, and, and won. Well, that could be <laughs> arguing about what he was doing all day. Uh, That's not really the same thing. Uh, so he won't go there. You know, William Lai has a day job. He's the vice president, and he's got a second day job. He's party chairman, and he's going to be running for president, uh, we assume. So uh, the fact that he's got a day job is, uh, is certainly not an inhibitor from, from, from him uh, announcing that he really does want to be president. But, but to take it back to the, to the uh, by-election, uh, yeah, the, it's, you know, how long could it take him, you know, half day? To go there, or just go there at, at at night. You know, he could spend his whole day working in in the mayor office here in, in New Taipei, and and then uh, drive down there, so he doesn't have to take a day off. He doesn't have to apply for an official leave of absence, and uh, he could drive back overnight. Uh, so he could have done it, and uh, it's not a surprise that uh, there there's some bad feelings in the Guomindang internally that Mayor Ho didn't do that. So, Michael, it's, it's Ho Yoe's fault. I think that this election, if you compare this district in Nanto to the recent by-election in Taipei, in many ways they're exactly the same. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen won several, uh, won big in 2016 and won by a slight margin in uh, 2020. Uh, yet in Nanto, the DPP candidate won, and in Taipei, the KMT candidate won. I think it had more to do with the personal qualities of the candidates. So you could agree that it was basically people voting against a candidate rather than for a candidate. It could very well have been. The the, uh, the candidate Lin for the KMT was kind of an old face on the scene. Uh, he had been very successful for many years, uh, so it was a bit of a surprise. But uh, in the end, I think that... Uh, that uh, Tsai has been organizing in Nanto for a long time, and it just goes to show how unpredictable Taiwanese politics can be. Uh, a DPP candidate or a KMT candidate who's the right one uh, can win in all but a few districts. 
And moving away from politics now, or rather moving away while I read the spiel I have to read, but then we're going to go back to politics for an obvious reason. Now, one of Taiwan's most infamous organised crime gangs made headlines this week. That, after the Ming Ren chapter of the Bamboo Union, held a spring banquet at the Marriott Hotel in Taipei. Now, reports have been saying that between 80 and 85 tables were up for grabs at this event, each costing some 35,000 NT, and some 900 people attended the bash. Now, hundreds of police officers were also on duty outside, inside and around the hotel and they were checking the identities of the invited guests. Now a minor, that being a person under the age of 18 not a man who digs for coal, a man carrying a knife and a wanted criminal were detained as they were questioned by police outside said hotel. Now the big party caused a bit of a hoo-ha as cable news channels ran endless footage of the event, or rather what was going on as the guests arrived and were greeted by some of the 170 La May who had been hired to well, greet the guests with big smiles on their faces. And of course, scores of police officers on duty stood by and watched. Now, Taipei City Police Department Commissioner Zhang Rongxing was less than impressed with the party, and he ordered a week-long crackdown on organised crime gangs, which began on Thursday of this week, with roadblocks, ID checks and raids on certain entertainment establishments with known ties to the mob. Now, some 200 police officers were brought out to carry out that operation on the first day, and three wanted criminals were detained. Now, two of them were wanted for fraud and one was wanted for forgery. Now, Premier Chen Jianren was also less than impressed with the partying mobsters and on Thursday of this week, he ordered police and prosecutors to step up efforts to crack down on organised crime gangs and Cabinet Spokesman Law Bing Jung said the Premier has asked the National Police Agency to carry out inspections of businesses with known ties to organised crime and take swift legal action against the suspects. And I happen to be joined today by two lawyers. So, Michael, obviously organised crime in Taiwan is a bit of an issue well it has been for a long time uh on the other hand uh taiwan does have freedom of assembly and as long as uh these people weren't actually committing any crimes uh it was probably okay for them to uh have their party uh of course the spectacle is something that is embarrassing to the police and the government and they're responding with similar performative measures they're they're Two uh, characters in the, in this drama. I, I'd have I have to question. What were you thinking? First is, first is the gangster who showed up, who, who who's wanted. Okay, so uh, as as Michael said, I mean the event itself is is legal. Uh, so. But but whenever there's a big gangster event like a funeral, uh, for example, or, or this kind of reception, the police go there and they go there for that for the purpose of looking for people who are wanted or underage or anyone who's dumb enough to have a, a weapon or, or narcotics uh, on, on their person. But, but you got to be like the dumbest gangster in Taiwan if you, you're wanted and you go to this event knowing that police are standing outside checking everyone's ID. I, mean, uh, I, I don't want to advocate violence, but, but uh, I think internally, uh, you know, we were talking about internal finger pointing at the Gomin dog. I mean, imagine over there at, at, at the uh, Bamboo Union, what, what they're going to do to this guy, you know, just for being the dumbest gangster uh, in, the, in the organization. Uh, the, the other uh, uh, character in this drama that, that that I have to question is 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 the operator of the Marriott. You know, whoa, yeah, that's a big ticket. You know, eighty plus tables. Uh, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, but uh, uh, you know, whatever happened to just you know corporate receptions, weddings, and bar mitzvahs? You they know? Might, they <laughs> might, we don't know. They might have applied as a business group. 
Well, look, Gavin, Gavin, it's the mob. We want to book a banquet room. Gavin, uh, I'm going to have to challenge you on that and say they knew who who was who this was. Okay, so I I, I would expect some of the the uh, the, either the business magazines or or the investigative uh, uh, publications are going to dig out why exactly did did the Marriott agree to to host this event? You know, is there a business relationship uh, between uh, the operators of, of the hotel and, and this subchapter of of the Bamboo Union or some other reason? Um, they, I, I'm looking forward to that part. Uh, but but, but you, know, you mentioned that we're lawyers and uh, you know, we look at risk issues. And again, you have to you have to say like, why, why would you do this? Believe me, Gavin. Over at at, at, at corporate headquarters at Marriott corporate headquarters, they're asking themselves and they're asking the the operator of the, of the property in in Taipei, what were you thinking? To, to host this event, I, 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 I'd love to be the Marriott uh, Taipei's lawyer and be writing that letter to corporate headquarters explaining why we thought it was okay to host this event. Because th- that's going to be some interesting uh, uh, legal and, and, and cultural mumbo jumbo in that letter to say, you know, oh, well, you don't really understand. In Taiwan, this was okay. And I mean, what are you going to, or, or as you say, oh, freedom of assembly. We can't, we take every customer. We have laws against discrimination in Taiwan. I mean, what are they going to say to justify this to corporate headquarters? But of course, Michael, I mean, gangster funerals are pretty big here. And politicians from both sides of the aisle do attend such events. So obviously, maybe the hotel argument could be, well, it's a cultural thing, like Ross said. I think funerals are in a slightly separate category. Uh, I, I think there is a little bit more leeway for funerals, but this was simply uh, uh, a direct challenge to public order, and hence the police are. I, I'm going to take a different view on that. And uh, somebody actually uh, got mad at me in a recent conversation on this topic. Uh, I think it's absolutely inexcusable for politicians from from any party. Uh, the the TPP, KMT, the TPP, NPP, go down, PFP, uh, TSU, whichever party it is, absolutely inexcusable to attend those big gangster funerals. I don't care how long or how many decades the the relationship goes back between uh, the the deceased gangster boss and and, and the politicians. Uh, so I, I I think it's just really unfortunate that those relationships still go on. And look, uh, one of new uh, DPP chairman uh, Lai's first orders of business was to strengthen internal rules against having people with a criminal record from serving in party posts or running for office as a party candidate because uh, there were people uh, in party uh, leadership posts who did have criminal records. And that became an issue after the, the bad election performance. I, I guess if they had done well in the election, nobody would have made an issue out of that. Uh, but but it, it's just an unfortunate thing that infects both parties. Uh, e- even people in size government have been accused of, of having inappropriate relationships with, with gangsters, uh, whether in the Ministry of Interior or the police agencies. Same thing happened with President Ma's government. Uh, it, it's... I, w- I want to say it's got to stop, but it's not going to stop. And the fact that uh, 
the, this organization could have such a large event it just shows the impunity that they think they have. And just a, a final thought on that, because you, you did mention this, Gavin, you know, the, the police, whether at the local or the national level, say, oh, you know, we're going to crack down. So, so what do they do? They, they, they just start raiding the gangster-operated establishments, which... Generally speaking, and just to be clear, and you, you, you mentioned this anyway, Gavin, those establishments are legal, right? It's, it's a bar, it's a dance club or a private member's uh, you know, piano club. Those are legal licensed establishments. When the police are raiding those establishments, they're, they're looking for someone who might have an arrest warrant out for them. And he might be there because it's gangster operated and gangsters hang out with their gangster buddies. They're looking for underage employees. They're frisking people to see if they have narcotics or, or weapons on them. And if you raid a gangster operated establishment, you might, you might hit jackpot. Uh, when you do that. But the point I wanted to make is the police seem to only do this when there's some trigger event that embarrasses them into doing this rather than actually more seriously uh, uh, raiding these establishments. If they raided them every week, these establishments, you know, the gangsters would go out of business. They wouldn't be able to continue to do this business. And why don't they raid them more frequently? Oh, gee, does anyone want to guess? <laughs> What would you be hinting at there, Ross? The, what do you... Well, the, the police are in their pocket. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, Michael, going back to the politicians attending, like, gangster funerals and being known to frequent other events with gangsters, do you think this, this glorifies the mob somewhat in a way it should not be glorified and makes them sort of normal? Uh, I completely agree with Ross that politicians should not be attending any of these events, uh, funerals or otherwise. I, I, I do tend to think that for some, for objectively speaking, that in Taiwanese society, there's a little bit more leeway for them to attend uh, 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 funerals. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that there are close ties between uh, religious organizations and the mob and that uh, they're able to mobilize a lot of votes. Uh, and it's a simple quid pro quo. Quid pro quo, Ross. That, that's just unfortunate. It shows uh, yeah, there's there's room for improvement. Any democracy, no democracy is, is perfect, uh, but there's room to get rid of that and uh, hopefully in the coming years, decades, centuries, however long it takes, <laughs> as long as Taiwan maintains its autonomy and is a democracy, that uh, this element will, will finally be eliminated. And Michael, do you think that the, the law enforcement agencies are basically stuck, again, between a rock and a hard place? I mean, they've got, obviously there are corrupt law enforcement officials, but do you think there's any way that Taiwan in maybe a decade or two decades, three decades, could actually get rid of large numbers of these organized crime gangs? Well, I think there's been progress over the last few decades. They're, they're less uh, visible and uh, I think less brazen in their activities than they once were. Um, and it really, you know, Taiwan is a relatively small place, but there's some variance in different localities, and it depends on where you are. Just as in the U.S., uh, the situation in Chicago or New Jersey is very different than the situation in, say, Northern California, for example. There's a lot of regional variation in these things. Yeah, less brazen until they take out their guns and shoot up a few politicians' offices in Tainan last year, <laughs> right before an election. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about that is that you know, they might these kinds of incidents where the brazenness of their activities goes quiet and then it suddenly appears. And uh, you know, fortunately, we don't have a lot of violent crime 
in Taiwan. And whenever there is violent crime, uh, it does become big news, uh, it, it, especially violent crime against you know individuals. Civilians. You could, thank you, yes. Um, but, but the violent crime within the organized crime space seems to be, you know, again, as evidenced by this shooting in, in Tainan and uh, the suspects were recently returned uh, by China in, in, in the hopes of embarrassing the DPP. Uh, there, there does seem to be some some you know, brazenness with, with the use of weapons by organized crime groups. And that that's a concern. I mean, it, at a minimum, it shows that there, there's more weapons circulating in Taiwan right now. And I don't mean the kind of weapons to defend Taiwan against against China. But you're talking about mob on mob violence. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we have to leave it here this week on ICRT's Taiwan This Week. And I have been joined in the studio by Michael Fahey. Goodbye, everybody. And Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.